Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Angela Cocott with you, filling in for Alex Pearson. You're listening to On Point. Troubling story in the Globe and Mail I was reading this morning, and I wanted to dig into it a little bit deeper and get more reaction. But looking at the population in federal women's prisons, and we have reached a point where, as of last week, 298 non-Indigenous women were in federal prisons and 298 Indigenous women, exactly half of the population in female prisons is made up of Indigenous women. Haven't we been talking about this for a while, and yet we're still seeing those numbers rise? I want to bring in Dr. Vicki Chartrand, Associate Professor in the Sociology Department at Bishop's University, founder and director of the Justice Exchange Research Clinic, Dr. Chartrand, thanks so much for joining us this evening. Hi, Angela. Thanks for having me. I just want to get your reaction when you hear headlines like that or see numbers where we we truly have a halfway point, and it's a troubling halfway point when we look at the population in women's correctional facilities. Yeah, well, first, I just want to say thank you for your comment, because you're right, we have been talking about this for a really long time. In fact, we've been talking about this since the early 1960s, right? So that's actually when we started to see uh, high rates of Indigenous carceration. But I think what's kind of interesting before the 1960s was, in fact, that we didn't really incarcerate Indigenous people in the penitentiary. In fact, the prison would do everything that they could to keep Indigenous people out out of the institutions, and we were seeing only rates of 1% to 2% Indigenous incarceration. But it was actually around the 1960s where those rates started to increase. And I don't know if you know but what was happening around that time, but um, actually that was when the uh, assimilation policy started to recede. So this is when we saw the abandonment of uh, the requirement for residential schools. It's where we also see uh, the, de- the, the uh, decriminalization of the potlatch and ceremonies and other Indigenous ceremonies. So just as we started to shift around the post-war era, shift around human rights discourses, we also started to see the prison system silently take over for the Indian agent. And so we went simply from a discourse of savage to criminal, and that no time in this period had the state taken any accountability for crimes against humanity, but particularly crimes against Indigenous people. Very interesting. So give me a little bit more of uh, that shift then in the 60s, because as you said, before that, you were able to see Indigenous men and women remain out of the prison system, but then it started to shift. Just get a little bit more into that. Yeah, that's right. So my my own research actually uh, took me back into the reports, the penal reports beginning from 1838. And I actually tracked, they they, they kept meticulous, because it was part of um, part of the system, they, te- they, they kept meticulous detail of everything that was going on in the prisons. And they took rates of, of uh, the ethnicities and race. And so I was able to track every single year how many the rates of Indigenous incarceration for every single institution 
that had been uh, that had been erected since uh, 1835 when the first penitentiary, Kingston Penitentiary, was built. Okay, so let's fast forward to 2022, 2022, and we're seeing huge numbers when it comes to, I'm focusing on the female population. This is just federal prisons. This isn't in a provincial system. So where have we gone wrong? Because it was a number of years back that we had the Supreme Court of Canada's landmark Gladue decision. We've had the recommendations that have come out of the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls saying that we've got to change, we've got to take a closer look at this. But nothing seems to change. Well, it, yeah, again, it's, it, you're raising some really important points because despite the 1960s, when 1967, there was a report that was commissioned to look to investigate the high rates of Indigenous incarceration. The same kinds of recommendations that we're seeing today were being made, you know, training, we need more staff training, we need a national action plan, we need, um, we need to address uh, sentencing, right? And then in the 1990s, we saw the same kind of what I would like to call indigenization of corrections, where we instituted, we hired more elders and we hired, uh, you know, Aboriginal liaisons. Well, this was, Aboriginal liaisons were a little bit later, but we started to employ more Indigenous people. So, and this is what we started to see was a lot more money and resources started going into the prison system itself. But at no point did we start to question how we've naturalized and normalized Indigenous incarceration itself. So all the resources keep continuing going into the prison, everyone's time and energy goes into uh, the institution of the criminal justice system. And meanwhile, and as you talked about for the missing and murdered Indigenous women, if you go into communities who are trying to support uh, women going missing and murdered, there's no money or resources there. So on one hand, we're putting in tremendous time, energy and resource into the institution, a criminal a criminal institution itself, and then we're not we're not putting it, and there's poverty by design within within the communities themselves. I mean, Cindy Blackstock uh, was fighting the government of Canada to get them to pay uh, Indigenous kids a fair uh, a fair amount compared to other kids in the rest of Canada, and the and the government of Canada was fighting her on this. So it's, you know, so on one hand, we have all these investments in the institution, and then there's there's incredible poverty within the institution or within the communities. And then we call it the legacy of colonialism. That's not a legacy. That is colonialism. I want to just touch on, though, how women, Indigenous women in particular, end up in the criminal system, because you touched on poverty. I think uh, a lot of experts have said, we've got to look at the root cause here. And then understand why, first of all, they shouldn't be, they should be going a different stream, but what is putting them in that system in the first place? So one of the things, I think there's, there's a lot of things that are at play here. My, my concern, particularly on my work, and, and, and it's not just my work showing this, it's, it's the stats. The stats don't lie. The, the rates have been increasing every, every single year since the 1960s. They've gone up every year. They've never gone down. And in the last uh, in the last 10 year period, what we've seen and what the correctional investigators outlined is that the general prison population has actually reduced, but the indigenous and the black prison population actually is actually increasing. 
And so what we're starting to, what I think is the problem isn't reform. It's not about more training or more, you know, addressing mandatory minimum sentences. I find these are really piecemeal reforms that aren't addressing a what's going on in the communities. But in particular for women, what we started colonialism, you have to remember that we're not in the post-colony. We're still a settler colonial um, community. And we, and we actually normalized segregation of Indigenous people, that we somehow think it's normal to take to segregate Indigenous people from their families. So we might, I've heard judges uh, send Indigenous women to prison so that they can get programming. Well, then they, they lose connections with their, com their community, but they lose connections with their children. I worked in communities where there was one particular woman, she had her eight, her eight children removed from her from my, by child welfare. Eight children. I would have trusted her with my own child. And yet here she is having all eight children removed from her. We've normalized the idea that Indigenous people can be segregated from their communities. And that creates, I mean, you, you can take anyone, remove them from their families and communities and supports, and you will not do well. And, you, and every, I talk to a lot of Indigenous people in prison, both men and women. Partially why women are particularly targeted, because... Um, the dispossession of women, Indigenous women, was central to a, a colonial project because they were the life givers and the life and the life um, the life carers. And so, what ended up happening is we know that through colonialism and the Indian Act, any time an Indigenous woman even left reserve, married a white man, she lost status. So, colonialism targeted Indigenous women specifically. So, this is why we start to see them as uh, being uh, sort of prime candidates for resocialization or rehabilitation, what the prison system calls it. But in my mind, that's assimilation. So, we continuously Vicky. feel that the prison system is going to um, be able to fix the problem when it's really the communities have the answers. Mm. You know what? At least we've got the conversation started and obviously there's so much ground to cover, but I'm so glad you were able to share some of your thoughts with us this evening. Well, it's really nice to be able to share these views and because it's, I think you're right, this, the conversation is starting in this way, um, uh, just just starting, to be, to be honest. Yeah. Thanks again. No, thank you, Angela. Dr. Vicki Chartrand, Associate Professor in the Sociology Department at Bishops University, founder and director of the Justice Exchange Research Clinic. 